0: This podcast is an exploration of decentralized information networks, secure computing, and autonomous software. Technologies which enable new global information networks, collectively known as the third web. care of Definity, I was privileged to attend the Web3 Summit in Berlin last year. While there, I interviewed Aaron Buchanan, the Executive Vice President of the Web3 Foundation, and Gavin Wood, founder of Ethereum, Parity and the Web3 Foundation. These guys are two of the individuals that launched the programmable blockchain revolution, and these interviews plot a course from the founding of Ethereum to their vision of the decentralized web and give us a trajectory beyond. A quick production note, these interviews were originally filmed and recorded in the style of other filmed interviews on the third web. Unfortunately, the footage was lost to a dead MacBook, leaving only the audio. As I usually cut myself out of the filmed interviews, my contribution is less geared for production. But on the whole, the content is still
1: excellent. I'm Aaron Buchanan, and I've got a background in... Engineering, did engineering, computer science for my master's at university. And then I went off and did some special effects for films, but decided that computer graphics wasn't the interesting thing, but actually the opposite computer vision. So then I did a computer vision, PhD, DPhil, also Oxford, and then went off into the world and actually was a professional algorithm designer for a couple of years. But being employed is uh, not the way forward. So yeah, a few startups. Ended up at Ethereum and now Web3 Foundation.
0: Okay, tell us about your experience at Ethereum.
1: Oh, yeah. So that was initially intriguing and exciting. Once the Bitcoins were in, you know, we went from raising interest and raising funds to actually delivering the goods, actually delivering Ethereum. Things changed a lot. And I ended up running most of ETH Dev. So there was the foundation in Doug, and that kind of given up there, you know, it's like job done, we've got the Bitcoins, what else? Actually, that, that's, that's not entirely fair because um, Mahaya did a good job of getting bank accounts and things set up. But of course, you know, we needed to go from zero to full developer team in a matter of months and getting all that done was really stressful. So my main memory of Ethereum is sleepless nights and endless stress, but you know, it worked.
0: I heard that like the foundation was like a total shit show
1: under a Oh yeah, so that came later. As we got closer and closer to network launch, it was like, right, okay, we've kind of got the whole delivery of Ethereum on course now. So, you know, this is at the point where, you know, the dev team was there. We weren't going to be hiring any more devs. The Stefan Toel was driving publicity and uh, meetups, developer community, brilliant. So it was all kind of, in terms of launching Ethereum, it was all on track. So then spent um, a bit of energy, firstly, sorting out East Dev, it's like right okay let's get in a professional uh, CFO, professionals um, CEO to you know make Ethdev a coherent, sustainable organisation because you know it's startup right you know startup craziness where the objective was everything and details like making sure all of the invoices were in the right folder was very much a second level task. But you know it got to the point right okay let's let's sort all that and of course the Ethereum Foundation in this time wasn't doing anything at all so it's like right okay and you know once Ethdev has Delivered Ethereum. There'll be some work for it to do regarding maintenance and, you know, patches, developing more dev tools, solidity, etc. But you know, ultimately, it makes sense to move everything to the foundation and actually have the Ethereum Foundation as the sort of original thing it was meant to be. Because this ETH dev structure was just, you know, political quirk of the way things developed. So it's like, right? But there is no one at the foundation, right? You know, there's there's no one there doing anything. So. Let's get a professional CEO or I mean, CEO isn't quite right for a, a, a foundation. So, you know, professional um, MD. So we did a worldwide search and we got some, you know, pretty good candidates. But at the end, you know, Vitalik was like, no, Ming is the person we want. And it's like, well, we're not too sure that she's the best person for this. But she's got experience and she's certainly uh, enthusiastic. I kind of left very soon after Ming came on board because I just burnt out. I wasn't on the receiving end of her managerial style. And yeah, so I left and helped Gavin Yutter set up what's now Parity, but soon realized that actually I'd burnt out to an even greater extent and just sort of stepped back and became a consultant for a while. I guess, you know, as the EVP of Web3 Foundation, what's important to me is to tease apart Web3 Foundation, Web3 generally, that's a a different um, uh, conversation, Polkadot, Parity, and Substrate. And the main thing here is that the Web3 Foundation is driving the development and deployment of Polkadot. And Parity have been you know, engaged to build the Rust implementation of a Polkadot client and help inform the research that goes into designing what the Polkadot client actually is. We've got a lot of research happening in Web3 Foundation, but of course, Gav is actually part of Parity, you know, any research that comes from him is obviously in Parity, even though it's been done for the Web3 Foundation and um, Rob and also part of uh, the whole structure and design of the Polkadot protocol. And Parity have implemented the Polkadot client, the architecture being a runtime environment and a runtime sitting in it, by building Substrate. But Substrate is a lot more than just a Polkadot runtime environment. So... Parity have ideas for how they're going to use Substrate beyond just Polkadot. But from the Web3 point of view, Substrate is one of the clients for running and being part of the Polkadot relay chain and deploying Polkadot parachains. And so all of that aspect of it, we're making sure is open source, free to use, but Parity will be able to go off and do whatever it wants with dual licensing for the greater capability that Substrate has.
0: So what, what is Web3?
1: Web3 is obviously, you know, like the, the label given to a religion, different things to different people. And that's why even though the Web3 Foundation started out with just the words Web3 in its logo, we've realized that we can't do that because that's, you know, like a vacuum cleaner company calling itself Hoover or, you know, a pen company calling itself BIC. Web3 to us means the decentralized web um, and the Web3 foundation is looking to map out the technologies needed to deliver as much of what we hope Web3 to be as possible. And that's where the Web3 tech stack comes from. And that looks at every layer of the technology from peer-to-peer communication layer all the way up to application level, uh, user interactive Uh, Interfaces.
0: So what about technologies? It all seems very blockchain
1: focused though. Sure. Polkadot is blockchain platform. But one of the things that we want to do, particularly through the Web3 tech stack, um, which currently only exists as a sort of PowerPoint nerds uh, created diagram, but we're going to spend some time actually using to explain the fact that the blockchain platform part of this is only part of it. And While it is, you know, a a crucial integral part of, you know, the whole tech stack, it needs to exist underpinned by separate technology deployed alongside different separate technology. So mainly decentralized uh, storage and decentralized messaging, but others as well. And then on top have many layers of um, technology and infrastructure using not just the blockchain part, but messaging and, and storage as well.
0: So messaging and storage, how do you do messaging and storage?
1: Good question. The Web3 Foundation isn't going to come up with a new proposal of how to do it. There are an, a lot of really good people looking into exactly these problems, and uh, we will, of course, help and encourage them. But um, primary one being IPFS. They've got so much of um, decentralized storage down with the, the standards and infrastructure they're building. That could be left alone to a great extent. I mean, there were other options as well, Swarm. From the Ethereum Foundation, storage, CM, other things. Yeah, Ocean Protocol, right. yeah. and we're working with all of them.
0: But none of them solve proof of replication.
1: Right. Yeah, and that is definitely surmountable. But it's it's certainly something that I think a lot of the original people looking at uh, proof of storage as a replacement for proof of work kind of overlooked. It's like, oh yeah, we can just have people storing stuff on their devices and that will be enough to show that they're wasting um, resources to underpin the security of a blockchain platform um, without looking at this exact problem because of course you can say that you've replicated and stored it but in reality have you and then you know that ends up being that um, the only way that's going to work as a uh, proof of resource is if the data is useless because it has to be independently provable and yeah random data isn't.
0: What about messaging?
1: Whisper secure scuttlebutt, these onion-style message-passing with the ability to decrypt when it's something that needs your attention, I think is a good basis for doing this. And again, the key here is to make sure that the largest extent possible, these approaches have interfaces which will allow them to connect to everything else in the tech stack. People talk about, oh yeah, we need messaging on the blockchain, but of course that's quite a non-starter. But having some kind of coordination happening on the blockchain is... Not a bad idea, but messaging can happen independently of a blockchain platform completely. But having that ability for the two to recognize each other for greater service provision, I think is definitely a good idea.
0: What's the next time when all of this stuff comes together?
1: I think actually, yeah, so um, this is is an interesting point and I'm going to step back a bit and um, give an answer to a question that you haven't asked, which I sort of push on people talking about where the technology is going, because of course, a lot of people want to know, right, what are these new technologies, should we be building on them? And you know, my standard answer is that we're not at a stage of maturity yet. And the sort of signal of that is that the technologists in the space that are, that are building all of this kind of know that we're not at the end yet. You know, that, you know, even, even when we were starting Ethereum, it's like, right, OK, so we've got Bitcoin, amazing new thing, but it's shit. And there's these huge swathes of ways that we can improve on that. I mean, it's just so clear, right? But we'll start with scripting. Right? And once we've got scripting, then we need to look forward to things like scalability and uh, reputation and messaging and uh, everything else. And so there's the, even back then, there was a clear checklist of things that need to be designed, built, deployed, tested, um, secured. And we haven't got through that checklist yet. We haven't got through the checklist that we had three years ago. So, you know, but the horizon's getting closer. You know, the sort of that checklist is the horizon. We're getting closer and closer to that. And of course, that horizon will always move back, but it, it, it moves back at an ever-decreasing pace. So we're not, we're not there yet. So the, the sort of, you know, next thing is getting scalability sorted, and Polkadot is a huge, like 95% of the way there on that. And then, for me, the, the really next big challenge is reputation. I've yet to hear of a plausible design for a reputation system.
0: What's the hard problem about reputation?
1: I haven't worked out how to phrase the answer to you know, the problem of reputation, but what's certainly true is that so many proposals look at the result that is, here is my reputation, rather than designing the mechanism for managing reputations. Because of course, the problem is that firstly, there is no one number fits all reputation score. You know, that, that, that makes no sense at all. And it particularly makes no sense if it's going to be organized in a decentralized way. So you know reputation needs to reflect that one's reputation is different in different contexts. And part of those contexts revolve around domains. So I can say a lot about the evaluation of uh, computer vision algorithms, but I am going to be useless if you ask me about the intricacies of orca populations in the South Atlantic. And then of course, there's the other side of this, which is that the contexts also range in their subjectivity, right? So you can prove a math problem and then you need some reputation to say, yeah, I understand maths and these concepts in this math proof are way beyond what normal people can comprehend. But I have the reputation of being a maths guru. And so I can say that, but a film review, that's super subjective.
0: Can't we do this with uh, certificate authority and attestation?
1: For reputation? No, because then you have some sort of uh, chain of reputation bestowing, which end somewhere. We can't have an end. That doesn't work in a long-term sustainable way. We have, this is how it works on Amazon and Netflix. That's fine, while Amazon has some magical, benevolent, curatory status. But, you know, it's obvious that that very quickly becomes uh, corrupt and pointless. It needs to be uh, decentralized. It needs to be some cunning, multidimensional, massive optimization process that happens in an incremental but robust way.
0: Do you see some of the philosophy applied by Scalabot as bearing on the reputation problem?
1: Yeah, so as a, as a platform for passing the information which is needed in order to result in meaningful reputation uh, indicators, then sure. But as an inter- infrastructure layer, peer-to-peer messaging infrastructure, that's definitely uh, part of it, but I'd say a small part of it. My name is Gavin Wood. I founded
2: Ethereum with Vitalik. I founded Parity with Jutta Steiner. I founded the Web3 Foundation, and I currently work as the lead of Polkadot.
0: So in addition to, to that stunning resume, you're also working on something called Substrate, and I think it's a, not a very well understood infrastructure component for what we often, what is being called the third web. Could you explain what Substrate is?
2: Sure, it's Parity's gift to the blockchain building community. It's also probably the biggest bet against blockchain maximalism. So Substrate's really a technology stack that's geared to creating new inventive, innovative chains easily. You can think of it as the sort of turbocharger for development of blockchains. It contains a bunch of components that are common across blockchains and a modularized sort of architecture that allows you to add and remove those components and configure new blockchains as easily as you would sort of configure any other piece of software. The sorts of modules and components that we're sort of looking at building or have built include balances, proof of stake mechanisms, governance and voting mechanisms, uh, things like DAOs and treasuries. Essentially, if we imagine a blockchain as a nation state, um, that nation state needs a, a government, and we can imagine the different departments of that government doing various, looking after various different aspects of, main, of the maintenance of that, that, that nation state. It's sort of the same with blockchain, and we're building, let's say, templates of each of those different departments uh, so that you can pick and choose which ones that you want. Probably the biggest single advancement of Substrate is its ability to upgrade itself. Critically, Substrate is. Based around a technology called WebAssembly, which is a very much cross-platform architecture for writing and deploying software that doesn't care about where it's executed. And at the moment, you know, the sorts of instances that you typically see WebAssembly being used is surprisingly enough, the web. Web pages can host, can bring, that, bring about software and let, them, let that software be run on the user's computer. But we're reusing this technology, uh, which is so well designed that we can reuse it into our uh, much more niche requirements of running it as a a sort of blockchain um, engine. So every blockchain that is based on substrate, most of that blockchain is actually compiled into WebAssembly. You can define the blockchain's protocol, as it were, in this platform agnostic manner. And because we can do that, it means that we can upgrade that logic, um, over the lifetime of the chain itself. So things that would currently require huge amounts of social consensus, hard forks, in order to push those upgrades, now require little more than a single transaction. And the fact that we can upgrade our blockchain, actually dynamically as it's running, is probably the biggest um, single advancement. So the specific model that we use in order to accomplish this it's very similar, it's, it's, it is still a blockchain, and if you go back to the basics of a blockchain, so if you go to basically the first, possibly the second page of the yellow paper that I wrote to describe Ethereum, you'll find the thing called the state transition function. And this basically describes how the state of the blockchain on one block changes to the state of the blockchain on the other block. And the sorts of things that change are account balances, Right? So you go back to this notion of like ledgers, and X has five ether, y, Bob, uh, Alice has five ether, Bob has 10 ether, Alice wants to give Bob two ether. You know the ledger changes. so now Alice has three ether, and Bob has 12. And there's a bunch of other things. I mean, Ethereum brought along the idea that there can be you know, smart contracts and they can have particular they have, they have their own ledgers that they can record other things with. But ultimately, we're, we're stuck with a very application-specific things that can be changed, whether it's smart contracts, which is an application of the blockchain, or balances, which is sort of the, the original Bitcoin application of the blockchain. What we do with Substrate is we say, let's go back to basics. Let's get rid of smart contracts, let's even get rid of balances. At the Substrate chain, the very, very lowest level of Substrate, we have a blockchain that stores nothing more than the consensus method. So a bunch of authorities, if it's an authority-based consensus method, and a blob of code, right? A bunch of of WebAssembly code, just a single blob of, like an executable, like a .exe file, right? Only this WebAssembly executable has um, compiled into it the rest of a blockchain, all of the other logic, all of the stuff that you might want to upgrade. What we do is we allow that, when we run the transition, when we say, is this block valid? What does this block do? We say, we're gonna forget all of this clever stuff with accounts and running smart contracts and virtual machines and script languages and balances and adding and removing and multi all of that we're gonna forget. And all we're gonna do is we're gonna fire up a WebAssembly engine, WebAssembly interpreter, and we're gonna shove this blob into it. And whatever this blob says should happen, that's what happens. We don't need to, what we've done really is we've built, not so much a protocol, but a meta protocol, right? We've built the thing beneath the protocol. The protocol is stored in this WebAssembly blob that's opaque, it doesn't matter. Substrate doesn't care what's in the WebAssembly blob. What we've built is the thing that executes the protocol. And because we've built the thing that executes the protocol, one of the things that we put into that, pretty much the only feature really, is the ability to change what it executes as blocks go on, as the chain continues. So really, the blob can alter the storage, so it can, there is a ledger, but it's a completely generic ledger. And it can alter the code. And it can say, right, this, this, instead of running this code, next block, we're going to run this other code. And that's an upgrade, because now you've changed the logic by which the blockchain um, executes blocks.
0: Yeah, so how, uh, what is the importance of these kind of systems for defending personal freedom?
2: When the internet began, when you sit down and use a computer... Forgetting things like click wrap licenses and signing up to Apple stores and whatnot. You're free. You can do what you want. You can visit whatever website you want. No one knows anything about you yet. In principle, we begin in a free state. What is it they they said? uh, No man is born into chains. This is something that's imposed on us. And so we have to think about, firstly, who is imposing? Secondly, why they're imposing? um, And thirdly, how they're imposing. Who, why, and how? And if we understand the answers to those questions, then we can start to begin to architect a world where we are more resilient to keeping our freedom. The who is relatively easy, right? It's the companies that we see behind um, the big websites, the big software and hardware, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, right? And it's many that those uh, subsidiaries of those companies, partly owned subsidiaries perhaps, and also clients. Of those companies or those in a business relationship with those companies that are managing things like advertising, corporate interests in essence. So the second thing is why. And this is a little harder. Like, what's in it for them? You know, part of it is, well, if we have lots of users, we can raise more money. You know, you go to a VC, they'll say, how many users have you got? Say, five million. They'll say, right, in that case, we'll value you at 50 million. In fact, it's increasingly not so much about that and increasingly about the data that those users generate and this is something that I think most people don't really understand, they don't really have a, a real, why is my data worth anything yeah. But in fact it's, it's increasingly this data en masse is providing um, huge amounts of economic benefit to those that know what to do with it. And this can be things like targeted advertising, of course, but it can also be other things, just learning better about how the world works. Google, for example, uses everyone's search data in order to work out uh, things like um, which things belong in sets with each other, right? So you can start to group things into sets. You can start to predict what people are thinking. You can start to understand the political changes afoot in countries. You can certainly predict things like um, the outcomes of elections, and of course, by changing, by refeeding this data back in to the same people, you can start to create what might be considered mimetic feedback loops, or basically the sorts of uh, clever shenanigans that Russia and Saudi Arabia, and probably an awful lot of other countries, are using in order to better control other countries' populations. So that's that's why.
0: But how do you prevent that from happening?
2: So then it's then is the third. Then it's how. So how are they managing to do this? And this is by far the hardest question to answer, but it comes down to centralization. It comes down to there being a relatively limited number of organizations that have access to data and that are used to get access to data. The fewer such organizations and the greater the individual level of control within those organizations, the more that they are able to be gained, gerrymandered, utilized to the desire and the needs of third parties that may or may not have the world's best interests at at heart. It's very much through this level of control that we submit ourselves to in order to use these services um, that we are ultimately played as pawns on a chessboard. How do we avoid that is therefore uh, um, the follow-up question. And that comes down to reducing our exposure to these single points of control, these centralized authorities. And I sound like a sort of, I don't mean to sound like a doomsday sort of, you know, Or We live in a world where people make decisions based upon very simple um, criteria of pretty much, you know, am I going to get rich off this? Right. Am I going to get powerful off this? Am I going to be able to turn the world into something that more favors me and perhaps my family and perhaps my friends? But basically, we live in most people are sort of going through the world thinking roughly in these terms. And that's, that's fine. We have, to be, we have to protect ourselves. But the problem is that those, while they're perfectly harmless and acceptable human characteristics on the individual level, become problematic. When people are making decisions of entire societies based upon them. We see this with sort of Trump's very uh, sort of self-centeredness. He's making decisions realistically mostly for himself, while as the captain and president of the USA. Because we have that kind of crazy magnifying glass, it leads us to societies that are malfunctioning. So what we need to do is to restrict these nexuses of power to the point where they no longer suck in all that information and no longer give out all that information. And any information that they do suck in and give out should be transparent in its origin, economic origin if necessary. That's much harder to do. It's much harder to engineer, but it is more or less what we are trying to engineer with these components of Web3. For more information, visit web3.foundation and
0: parity.io. Please subscribe on iTunes, follow on Twitter at The Third Web, or visit thethirdweb.net for episode notes, further episodes, and also filmed interviews.